All right. So uh, was Creed a Christian band or was Creed a band that just happened to, they were a band that a happened band of to Christians. be Christians. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, a band of, sure. right. No, I mean, was, was Creed a Christian band or was, was it a band <laughs> they happened to, they had members that happened to be Christian? This is the kind of question that people who wear cargo shorts ask and worry about. <laughs> Have you seen the usefulness of cargo? I mean, <laughs> to be fair, the first time I met Jordan, he was wearing cargo shorts and was talking about Creed. <laughs> it's a, and it's good. <laughs> but Jordan, is it, I mean, does Creed a Christian band? No, they're not a Christian band. They're, they are, they are a band whose message and heart mm-hmm. is transcendent you know you can be a jew and like creed okay you can be <laughs> a pagan and like creed you can be a wiccan and like creed right um here's the thing i mean it's like okay let's think about this for a second um yeah what's that song uh oh, wait, how does it go <laughs> <laughs> dude i thought you loved creed yeah oh what's this life for okay come on was that a christian song (laughs) what's this life for he's on a plane talking to somebody that clearly attempted suicide because they have scars on their wrist see your wrist i know your pain i know your purpose on your plane i've never felt more alienated from a conversation yeah that's a deep that's a deep cut i don't know that one (laughs) you know i mean just the topic in general is just completely like otherworldly to me okay but i'm going to make a certain point about creed yeah it's very crucial like for any other evaluations there's scott stapp right mm-hmm. and then there's the band creed right now what you, i, what I want to even, say could, yeah go ahead is that brian marshall's licks on the first two albums of creed mm-hmm. i mean are they christian they're good that's what they are and oh. he is a christian because he has a big huge cross on his arm but um, <laughs> Brian Marshall is uh, bassist. Yeah, the bassist. Oh, the bassist. Yeah, let's listen. It's got yeah, Scott Creed vocals, Mark, vocals. Mark, Mark Tremonti. Tremonti. Yeah, oh, very yeah. good. Incredible yeah. guitarist with a Paul Reed uh, Smith, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. The PRS. Um, uh, Scott Phillips on the yeah, drums. Great under under. Some, sometimes drummer. we call him Flip. Yeah, uh, and then Brian Marshall on bass. It's Brian Marshall the, on bass. It strikes me that Creed's the kind of band that you. You, you use you use denominators like guitarist and bassist for because yeah, like right. you you have a Paul Reed Smith uh, right. auxiliary oh, percussion. I just thought of him as musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I have Keys. to say, I saw Is, Creed. It, it, yeah, I Go saw ahead. Creed in concert three times, and there was <laughs> one of the times Scott Scott Stapp did come out and try to play uh, rhythm guitar. Yeah, okay, that was a disaster. He's not. Yeah, a, you know, yeah, it is true that. I unlike most real bands, <clears throat> as opposed to Christian band like Creed, I don't think that any of the members could play one another's instruments. Yeah, right. You couldn't. You couldn't get more <clears throat> back there on the drums. You're uh, saying they capture. They bottle lightning. Is what you're saying. <laughs> well, we, ob- obviously. Yeah. Sure. Have you seen the Super Bowl performance? Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, okay. So that was when I first. You know, that's when I first really began to appreciate uh, what Taylor and Jordan were were selling here when I received 
that footage and I watched it and then I proceeded to watch it probably 10 times in a row. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, and this wasn't a part of my, of, of the formation of my Fronima as it was for them. <laughs> I, um, I haven't yet had the, whatever sort of casserole prepares you <laughs> like the sort of mid middle of the country flyover casseroles. Yeah. It's a hash brown to, casserole. to prepare me. Uh, hash brown. To have the obediential potency to to receive creed. <laughs> to receive that, I mean, I didn't either. But I mean, I, like Justin, as a son of the of the coast, I have to say, it arrived nonetheless as an interruption. <laughs> Okay, let's start the show. This is Actually It's Good, the podcast where we show that some things you've been told are bad are actually good. This is Taylor. Jack. Justin. This is Jordan. This is episode one, Neo-Chalcedonianism. Actually, it's good. Neo-Chalcedonianism, we're going to talk about what it is, um, why it matters, how it came about. this will be a two-parter, uh, but first we're going to talk about um, the historical background to Neo-Calcedonianism um, before showing that actually it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan is our resident expert on Neo-Calcedonianism um, and, and its historical background, so he's going to sort of walk us through uh, that, its historical background, what it is, how it came about. Um, so. Jordan, you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, Neo-Chalcedonianism is a term that was used in the early 20th century. You can think of other analogs to this in modern scholarship, like Neo-Platonism. I think it used to be more of a common trend to talk about Neo-Arianism, say, in the Mm -hmm. late 4th century. Obviously, one of the things it does is it sort of demarcates a later historical period or group of thinkers. Uh, that come after Chalcedon, but also, of course, neo means new, so it's sort of like a, a, a revival of it. And basically, all it means is people after the Council of Chalcedon in 451 defending Chalcedon against its critics, but doing so not just by like barking back what was said at the at the council at at their interlocutors but actually trying to develop the fundamental concepts and tendencies enunciated at the council uh, in such a way that it could be perhaps persuasive to those that were not ready to sign on. Of course, to this day, there are still right, traditions and so forth that, uh, that are non or anti-Chalcedonian, so it's, it's not even simply a historical relic um, in that way. Could I, could I interrupt you? Just ask, uh, you know, that, that all sounds interesting. Like, it's, it's of historical interest. Uh, why would people say that's bad? Well, there's two reasons, I think, why they think it's bad. Or we should maybe put it this way. There's or one dangerous. reason why. Well, there's one reason why I think people think it's ornamental. 
So that's not bad. Mm. And it's not, it's it's not necessarily good. It's just sort of like, you know, dotting the I's and sort of finishing up the last few math problems on your, on your worksheet or something. So that's not like it's bad. It's just that, you know, if you never get to it, it's not that, that that's bad or you're missing out on something essential in Christian thought. So there's one, so I think there's that, there's that part. Then there's like when people actually do start to look at what's really there, what's being said, some, and we'll see later, some major figures, even in modern theology, have thought, wow, actually that's, that's bad. Uh, so for the first one, right. I would say, um, I think there's just basically a typical sort of prejudice um, that says, that thinks of the, the development of the councils and the things that they discuss is essentially just a block upon block upon block approach. You know? mm-hmm. uh, we, we got together, we discussed, you know, some major issues, came up with a, a solution. We didn't tie up all the loose ends. And so later on, we're going to gather and tie up some loose ends and maybe we'll find some more and so forth. So I think, uh, I think that some people don't necessarily think it's bad the later, say, 6th and 7th century developments is really what we have in mind here. But they just don't necessarily think it's, say, as, as important as uh, the 4th century. Nicaea, you know, Constantinople I, and then all the way to Chalcedon 451. So um, those people just think, you know, like later controversies, like whether or not Jesus had two activities or two wills, of course, later, those are just sort of like, little uh, skirmishes that happen after the battle's basically already been won. And so I don't think that those, those people or that approach thinks it's bad or good. They just think it's, uh, um, you know, something somewhat uh, sort of like fizzling at the end. The, yeah. The, sort of like a historical footnote to something that was worked out yep. definitively already in the fourth century. Yeah. So that's something we don't think here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we're going to try to see is that actually those later discussions are not just uh, later uh, like disconnected discussions or a footnote. But they actually uh, demand the revisitation of the body of the text, like of the of the major fundamental ideas enunciated earlier councils. So there's that. And I do think uh, I think we'll see a little bit more clearly once we see what's actually being said um, that some people think it's actually bad because you know, spoiler alert, it's these people in order to defend Chalcedon, especially, and to especially make it persuasive to like Miaphysites, mm-hmm. those who say that Jesus only had one nature or like the famous phrase, one incarnate word. Uh, so one nature of incarnate word. Um, uh, Neo-Chalcedonians seem to these people to seed so much that they basically just create a new form of Miaphysitism. Mm-hmm. And that collapses the distinction between divinity and humanity in Jesus, transcendent and imminent in Jesus, infinite into the finite. Mm-hmm. Or, sorry, rather, finite being absorbed to the infinite. And so they don't like that. It seems to dehumanize Jesus. It takes him out of history so quickly. Um, so that's, that's, I think, why a lot of people think, actually, you know, Neo-Calcedonianism, it's either incidental or tying up loose ends at best. Or it's actually, uh, you know, making some missteps and some grave errors that regress that take us back to an earlier problematic, uh, usually thought, uh, you know, like a new form of neophysitism. So uh, let's maybe start with Chalcedon itself. Yeah, so I think, uh, 
just to do a real quick, you know, what what are the tendencies? There's two fundamental tendencies that Calstein that Calstein tries to address. This will be familiar to maybe some people that have read general surveys and so forth of, uh, of the first several you know centuries, uh, especially developments in Christology. On the one hand, you won't you know some of you won't be surprised to hear a more quote unquote Alexandrian emphasis that preceded the council in the centuries was an emphasis on the unity, the oneness of Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever else you say about his divinity and how it relates to his humanity, uh, whatever else you say about him being God and somehow also man, what's fundamentally important is you keep these two elements together. There is one subject in the Gospels. The story is about one person who suffers and acts and you know and so forth, dies and uh, resurrects. So that's the emphasis, the emphasis on identity, the, the oneness that comes from like this, uh, especially with Cyril of Alexandria, the Alexandrian line. That's one tendency. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the other tendency is basically the contrary to that. It's typically attributed to Antioch and the Antiochian theologians. You know, there's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a misnomer, but it's not worth getting into details there. This tendency, uh, most extremely expressed by Nestorius wants to emphasize the duality of Jesus. What's two in Jesus? Whatever else you say about the subject of the narrative, this person uh, or set of persons, or however you want to parse it out, even the story says not consistent with this, um, you have to keep God and man apart. They're not the same. To collapse them together is to completely, uh, at, at the worst, makes an idol, because you basically say God is a creature. Uh, or at the very least, it's just a logical, it's just a contradiction, it's an absurdity. And so the emphasis here, very often you'll see in Taiking theologians like Theodoret of, of Cyrus and so on, uh, beginning with enunciating general logical principles. What do we think divinity is like? Right? Infinite, immaterial, eternal, etc. Right? Well, what do we think uh, a creature is like? Well, the contrary, at least the contrary. To those mm-hmm. things, temporal, uh, finite, right, mortal. So um, and so though, so that's the framework. These are these are obvious, familiar, abstract concepts, but they're also commonsensical concepts. We need to keep these clear. But whatever else we say about Jesus in the mixture or the unity or the relation between God and man and Jesus, you don't want to compromise these basic laws of logic. So that, that kind of whole tendency then wants to say, you know, we need to retain the integrity of the duality in Jesus. So when we get to Chalcedon, finally, and what's known as the Chalcedonian definition, it's not a creed. It's like a, it's like a statement of ex- explanatory statement. What you don't really get is a resolution. You just get basically both things enunciated, proclaimed, and affirmed at once. So, for example, right? Some famous lines here. We all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man. So this this mantra, the same, one and the same. Uh, later on, it's going to say, uh, right, he says, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only be God, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, et cetera, et cetera but one person, one hypothesis. So that's just like the Cerulean Alexandrian emphasis on unity pronounced. There's one subject. Mm-hmm. 
Then what we also get integrated into that in the very same text is the duality, right? Consubstantial with the Father as regards divinity and consubstantial with us. Okay, consubstantial is a word we all know that's used all the way back in Nicaea. The Son is consubstantial with the Father. Now the Son is also consubstantial with humanity. And then the double birth motif, right? Born before all ages, begotten of the Father before all ages, but also, right, um, and in these last days, the same one for us and for our salvation from Mary, the Virgin Mother of God, as regards as humanity. So, so basically what you get is just at one in the, with one and the same sort of pronouncement, the one subject somehow bears, actually makes possible and expresses this complete duality of contraries. Somebody like uh, you know, Rowan Williams in his more recent good Christology book, nevertheless, even he will, like just looking at this text, will get a little nervous about what seems to be a symmetry here uh, developing right here in the text of Chalcedon uh, around the one figure and subject of Jesus, the one person or hypothesis is what they say, right? The two natures of Jesus, this one hypothesis in two natures, it makes it seem like Jesus is just as much God as he is human. He's just as much, to put it that way, right? born of the Father before all ages, as he was born in these last days from the Theotokos. Right? He's just as much one side as he is the other, which seems to create a symmetry between the two sides, or duality, the two terms. And, and, and why, so, why, why is that yeah. something that somebody might worry about? I mean, why, why is that bad? Yeah, that was my follow-up. Well, historically, it's because it seems to clash pretty clearly. And as, as soon as you say, if you if you were to bring in like Leo's tome or something, he's mm-hmm. going to have a really clear emphasis on the duality. And we don't need to get into that, but that's sort of a famous text for this. And they mentioned it at the council. But uh, why people would worry about that is because uh, is it seems to depart from Cyril's emphasis on the unity uh, exactly because it's, it's, it's funny because you can actually look at it from two ways. You could say, on the one hand, it seems to kind of create two separate floating terms that just sort of relate to each other mm-hmm. by this kind of symmetrical, almost sympathetic interval, right? So it's like they're both kind of floating there. And even in your mind, logically, you have two basically separate entities in your head that Jesus, as it were, conjoins or brings together in himself. So that seems to treat them as equally terms of the one person of Jesus. On the other, so that can actually be like a worry on like the exa- Alexandrian or like the, the sort of side that emphasizes unity. But on the other side, um, you can also worry about it because you worry that, you know, Al- Cyril and even later writers still sometimes will say that the word of God, the logos, is his divinity. Mm. And there's mm-hmm. a sense in which, especially if you take something like a a rather crude view of the relationship, say, between eternity and time, you think of, like, the word, that one person, as it were, floating there before anything, before the world or history, and certainly before the first century Palestine, right, and the events mm-hmm. that, uh, surrounding Jesus' birth. You think that the word is already God, and that's actually, like, more truly or fundamentally his nature than whatever he adds on later. Mm-hmm. Like properties almost. Yeah, exactly. Right. In fact, Severus is going to use exactly right. the word you just said, is that, that in the incarnation, uh, the, the word who really is God, essentially, naturally God, 
adds a property of humanity. So, so actually it can, it can start to sound like, well, hold on a second. If you're, if you're going to say something like, can your Christology handle saying that Jesus is just as essentially in his essence, mm-hmm. human, finite, as he is divine and infinite, that starts to feel like you're treating the two natures univocally. Mm-hmm. Like they both are sort of, you know, um, just as much Jesus essentially, uh, you know, uh, for him. And, and, and a lot of people feel like there's almost like a weight to divinity that should create an asymmetrical imbalance, which tips towards the divinity, which, which most every metaphysics in the history, I think, of you know, thought has at least attributed preeminence to divinity or to the one source and cause of all things. And so it mm-hmm. seems just it seems to just follow that if Jesus really is consubstantial with the Father, that's like his real identity. Everything right, else is hierarchical. Yes. Even like, in uh, Jesus, there is a, as it were, an imbalance. And what we have here is nothing like an asymmetrical presentation of Jesus. All you get is two things at once: identity, one and the same Lord Jesus Christ, and symmetry. Mm-hmm. One of the Father, born of Mary into natures right? so you're, you're you're proposing to <clears throat> to take us out of a christology of unhappy consciousness <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> why not remain content with what the council has enunciated right why neo-chalcedonian why not just chalcedonian why is it that the kind of equipoise um that the cerulean party proposed mm-hmm. became insufficient um so part part of the I think answer to that is that um, uh, the terms that were used in order to define or sort of enunciate these two dis- the distinct tendencies at once had been used differently, very differently in Christian tradition, specifically in fourth century Trinitarian theology, as Johannes Sachuber has gone to work to show um, before. Right. So let's just refresh. In the Chalcedonian definition, it's Jesus is one qua hypostasis, hypostasis, or person, right? Whatever that means, as Augustine would say earlier, right? Whatever that is. Um, we're going we're gonna to have to go back and forth between Erasmian and true Greek pronunciation in this podcast. I know, Hypo- I know. So, so, no, we're going to have to take a side. So Jesus Christ is one hypostasis. Hypostasis. <laughs> Jack is, Jack is dying. I can see like in a video game, life is gone. And actually internally. <laughs> okay, sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. Jesus but is it's, one hypostasis. Hypostasis. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with person from now on. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah. uh, right. Then he is two. It's like in two natures. Feces. 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 So, uh, and also essence, these are used synonymously mm-hmm. around this. Stuff. So, so nature mm-hmm. essence, I just caveat for now, it's not actually always true and actually significantly, but mo- very often they're used synonymously. They're not always. Though. Um, so he's got, we have one person with two natures or essences. Um, and this is the faith. Yes. And this is the faith. Like this is supposedly explaining too, like how, what the mystery, the contours of the mystery of the incarnation are. Right. 
And so a lot of people, when we're having these discussions, will repeat this formula back to you, right? Absolutely. I mean, you teach us like intro or yeah, whatever. Right. You say, one person, two natures. Um, you rarely get to later, like and two activities and two wills and mm-hmm. stuff. Right? Um, you just say one person, two natures, right? So that's all. The problem, right? The problem is, and Taylor, you you might want to say something a little bit more, but this is a little bit more in your wheelhouse. But in the fourth century, said the Cappadocian fathers in Trinitarian theology, especially in response to and Eunomius and so on, or Arius and Eunomius, um, you know, they're going to make use of these exact same terms in Trinitarian theology uh, somewhat differently. You might say something about how they used them, and then we can see how it's different. Yeah, right. So um, this is also a familiar story that, that, that people trained in theology, historical theology, um, will repeat uh, rightly. Uh, which is that in the fourth century, the problem of the three persons of divinity um, and their one essence or nature um, was solved by the Cappadocians, um, predominantly by Basil of Caesarea and his brother Gregory of Nyssa, um, by uh, introducing the terms usia on the one hand and hypostasis on the other, the two terms we've been already working with. So um, the Holy Trinity is one, in essence, one in Uzia, um, all three persons share in the common essence. Um, they all, all three persons um, uh, share a logos this Uzias, right? Um, a logos of being. Uh, <laughs> but they are uh, individuated, the three persons of the Trinity are, uh, according to the term hypostasis, right? Um, and so the hypostasis is um, what admits of what Basil calls idiomata. They're the, they're the uh, uh, individual characteristics that are proper to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Um, so that's how, uh, by the end of the fourth century at least, this, this was obviously in some, um, this was some controversy throughout the fourth century, but by the end of the fourth century, that's how the two terms are used, right? So uzia is what names what's common in the Holy Trinity, um, and hypostasis is what individuates the persons of the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's a special uh, comparison that Basel uses at one point, uh, where he says that the usia, or the essence, is is uh, comparable to the universal and the persons, the upostasis are, are comparable to the particulars. There's quite a lot there that, you know, and then they'll want to qualify that because obviously they're not saying, for example, there's a genus called God and then there's Father, Son, and Spirit, which are members of this class of genus in the way that us, you know, that we four are four human beings, but we have one common essence humanity so but but the problem all of this now then skip ahead to chalcedon's definition and what do you get you get now that the the principle of unity not of differentiation but the principle of unity the sun is the apostasis but but then what's two almost like the principle or what's distinguishably dual in jesus or the Uziye, you know, or the uh, or the natures and the mm. essences. Right. So, so the, the terms have flipped. The terms have flipped, and it seems to, and especially now back to Justin's question earlier, right? 
this is especially a problem the more you think about the reciprocity to the sy- symmetry between what's two. Because what are you saying? Are you saying that the sun is consubstantial with us in the, in the same human. way as he's consubstantial with the Father? Well, the way he's consubstantial with the Father doesn't make three gods, but he's consubstantial with like humanity, and there's millions and billions of human beings separately. So, so my point is, we don't have to get. There's a ton of different problems, like specific, actually extremely technical things that come up in the sixth century, especially. Um, But the point, the basic point here, is just that the terminology that's being put forth at Chalcedon to distinguish the unity and duality in Christ demands rethinking about what these terms even mean, both in light of the. Uh, controversies at the time, Christological controversies, but also in light of the past Trinitarian theology where the same terms have been used in in very different ways, or at least particular or peculiar ways. So I think that that kind of sets us up, I think, and that's one answer to the question, why is Chalcedon not enough? One answer to the question is because, well, you've got the Nicaea-Constantinople councils using these terms in one direction. And you've got Chalcedon use them in, right. in another direction. So even just with imminent within the tradition itself and the development of the conciliar thought, there's already some, it's like, it raises the question immediately. So, well, what okay, maybe this is another pushback that you might, you might say here. Um, well, that's all well and good, um, but why can't we just be content with, say, the classical Cappadocian model, talking about the Holy Trinity, um, and then speak about what's going on in the incarnation differently? Right. Um, right. And this would be someone like uh, Severus, some people say Severus, of uh, Antioch, who is sort of the champion of the Miaphysites and the, the, the most renowned anti-Chalcedonian, um, really probably in the right ever really? to this day. <laughs> uh, he would he would actually want to exactly that is his move his move is to say no there's a there is a difference between the way these terms are used in trinitarian theology i mean say that like trinitarian but when 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 we speak of the trinity say in the way uh, the nicene line does they are used very differently obviously look because you have one nature and you have three persons but it doesn't set up a class member relationship so that's a different. That's a that's a that is a mysterious use of the terms, properly because it's God after all we're speaking of there, theology proper in that sense, right in his sense. Then when you come to the economy, the son becoming human in some sense, and Severus does think he became human in some sense. He does say that. Um, that has to be different. Because now you're speaking of God in this finite world, which does which does differ from God in Himself, quite drastically. And this should this should sound quite familiar to anyone who objects to a neo-Chalcedonian position yeah. today, because you can find precisely this point yes. reiterated by every single critic of neo-Chalcedonianism yes. but, and, 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 uh, presently, whether it's Balthazar. Whether it's wrong, right. I mean, I mean and, and even re-narrations of the fourth century, you can find this. So, um, you know, in Ad Oblavium or Ad Graecos, when Gregory uh, mm-hmm. or Basil, um, for that matter, reaches for the 
the image of uh, 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 of three persons, right? Three human persons to talk about how the relationship between hypostasis uh, uh, and Uziah obtained in the Holy Trinity. Um, what people will say is like, well, of course, that's a that's an analogy, right? That's an analogy for how we talk about right. the three hypostases of the Holy Trinity. But at a certain point, the way we, yeah, at a certain analogy point, the way we down. think about how, um, say, us four are human, uh, uh, we all share an essence, but we're each four distinct human beings. Um, at a certain point, that's going to break down with the Holy Trinity. And as Jordan just said, the way to do that is often to invoke mystery, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is actually, right. this is precisely Sever- Severus, the Miophysite. This is his point. His point is, listen, when you speak of Jesus as a member of humanity, well, then Jesus's way of being a member of humanity is going to be like your way of being a member of humanity, which is when you are consubstantial with humanity, Number one, there is no, he agrees, there is no nature that's floating there. It's always in persons, like particular individuals. Jesus is a particular individual, number one. And then number two, though, if he's really a particular individual like you are and distinct from you, and we're all distinct, well then, right, the way he's consubstantial with humanity, or he wouldn't say that, he wouldn't say consubstantial with humanity, but the way he's human, right, is, is such that, um, he is concretely one, and whatever about him is human is secondary to his fundamental concrete nature, which is divine. And so why, why the, then there's no – he denies univocity of terms between, say, well, I'm just going to say trinity and economy. Hypostasis, hypostasis, and you know, a person in essence function one way in the trinity – because there being one nature is being one concrete, right? God, if we're monotheists still. So one nature is one concrete determination. But here, if you're, so if you're going to do univocity, right, then you're going to say, and you're going to then say there's two natures like Chalcedonians and Neo-Chalcedonians want to say. He can't hear anything, but okay, so there's two concrete things there. If you're going to do insist upon university, <laughs> right. but in, but instead, so so better to say, really the terms just don't function the same way. Uh, here they are qualified severely by the limits and strictures of finitude, and so what it means for Jesus to be a person or what he prefers to say, one incarnate nature of the word, is it's it is a um, he has the pro- the term he'll eventually settle on is. He has the property. He is properly human, but it doesn't amount to a second nature because he doesn't double himself concretely. That's Nestorius. That's two concrete different things. So, so Severus does admit that Jesus has a, he sometimes has quality, sometimes he says property that's human. Okay, so he, he agrees with that. And you can read some of his homilies where, He's extremely detailed about, right, like the details of Jesus' human life and as they're related in the gospel. So so we can't caricature him in this way that, like, meophysitism is just like, you know, oh, he's walking through like Superman un, un, unaffected by uh, the vicissitudes of history. Or you know. No, it's like he really does have a properly human existence, and yet it can't be a nature. Now, admittedly, that sounds different than the way it works in the Trinity. And basically Severus is going to say, yeah, 
that that's that's right it does and that's yeah. the way it should be because of course whatever you predicate of god is going to work very differently than when you predicate the same things of anything that's not god or anything that's in the realm of finitude so can i ask a, a, a no sorry go ahead I was just going to say uh, I'm I'm distressed to learn that Severus of Antioch is a uh, a mephizite because I I have been reading his homilies before bed, um, and I, here I was thinking they're making a good deal of sense. Oh, they often do. So I mean, my uh, I this is kind of to be the the, the lone systematics person, I guess. Um, strictly speaking, uh, is this? I mean. Forgive me if this is like a dumb question, but is his are the breaks that Severus pumps on all of this primarily epistemological? Because there's a way that that sounds very modern, right? Mm. Where he's saying, "Well, you can't really know how these two things are related to each other because you're a finite, circumscribed intellect, so you can't join one and two together because it's beyond the bounds of." I don't know. It, it, it's to cross a threshold of the noumenal <laughs> in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Or is he saying that uh, it, this is like an ontological logical distinction where he's saying the predicates apply to two different subjects in two different ways because you're talking about two different things? Or am I separating something that, or am I anachronistically something, separating something that's presumed together here? I think initially for Severus, they're presumed together. I think what I think what Severus is more than anything else is a very faithful expositor and defender of a lot of Cyril of Alexandria's concerns. Okay, yeah. And so, like Cyril, as like Richard Norris has pointed out, and stuff. Um, he's where he's always going to begin is with the single subject. Sure. However, you want to go on and theorize about that. Okay, I mean, here I'm going to use property. He's got a pro- human property. Here I'm going to say he's got a human quality, whatever. But really, he's less interested up front in, in theorizing. He's more interested in just the absolute affirmation of the singular event that here God and man are one concrete thing, nature. Mm-hmm. But and yet and he's partitioning the two. Well, yeah. And so he's, he's partitioning the two. In, like It's almost like his in my read at least, his way of partitioning of them is, is to sort of rebuff the abstractions uh. from the start. Like, you can only partition abstractly, uh-huh. right? Infinite, finite, what are they like? Well, let's compare them and contrast yeah. them. Uh, which, is, which is, to be fair, what very many anti-Achaeans did. Um, and, and then it leads for him, that abstraction leads immediately to a furtive either intentionally covert or perhaps you actually fall into, basically you end up thinking of Jesus as two subjects. And, and, uh-huh. and the, ab- the abstract yeah, partitioning so is think, something that Cyril yeah, himself had done, right? I mean, this is, so, so you can admit of distinction theoretically, he'll say, mm-hmm. you know. Uh-huh. I, right. Yeah, only yeah. theoretically, yeah. right? Only in mind or something like that. Which, which is as late as Maximus right. Confessor, he's right. still repeating those formulas. I really, formula. I really, Jack's question uh, only gets in mind. the point that Grillmeyer, um, uh, who's in many cases a guiding light in these matters, um, one of the few who's sort of gone this far, um, he he makes a good point in his his yeah. essay, um, his article about Neo-Chalcedonianism, that I mean. 
part of recognizing the power of Severus is recognizing the power, the enduring insight that Cyril had, right? Which is that which is that Cyril is constantly mm-hmm. trying to give faithful articulation to the event of the incarnation, as you said, right? It, it is the single subject that is presented to yeah. you mm-hmm. in scripture. It's presented to those who witness Jesus in the body, right? Um, that it's a single subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's the heart of Severus's concern from beginning to end. Um, we don't have to get into some of his later stuff, but like, yeah, essentially, essentially that, that is what he's concerned about. He's less concerned about getting everything clear and theoretically tidy than he is preserving the singularity and the unity. Mm-hmm. And really in his mind, the mystery mm-hmm. of the event of Christ. And, um, I, I also think that he does recognize because you can just read some of these Antiochenes. I mean, you could just think of a basic statement: subject and object are already two things. Right. Anytime you predicate anything, it's going to be you're going to sound like, even if it's an identity statement, it's going to at least sound and form like two floating yeah. entities. This is that, right? And so he's always afraid, like he's got an, a visceral reaction to any sort of this is that or this and that, because he thinks it can very quickly turn into that, right? Go from this is that to, well, you know, but also and that. And then it's like, wait, what? So are they juxtaposed? Are you just putting them close together? Is the humanity and divinity of of Jesus sort of... And so he's looking at, you know, mm-hmm. Chalcedon's definition and saying, okay, you're you're not only just pronouncing duality, but you're making them symmetry. Here's divinity. Here's humanity. He's perfect both of one of, you know, of, of those. Here's a birth before all ages. Here's a birth in time. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he sort of suffers both of them, right? And so it's like, what, what do we do? Like, that's almost as, and then you add to that some of the statements from Leo's tome, which were also brought forth. Okay, he's just like, Chalcedon is Nestorianism. That's his entire, th- so, one, so one of the reasons earlier, back to an earlier question, one of the reasons why Chalcedon wasn't enough is because Severus made it impossible for it to be enough. He's asking fundamental questions and he's raising <laughs> fundamental objections at the heart of the way it's even stated. Right. Um, and so, and I, I also need to say this, I think we, we skipped over this a little too quickly. He, he, he is, there is a common assumption around all of, in all of these parties, whether it's Nestorian, the Antiochian people or Alexandrian, Cyrillian, Neophysicist and and actually neo-Calcedonians as well as we'll see, there's a fundamental principle that they all hold to abstractly, and it's this: if something is a nature and it's real, it is also a person, or or we could say a subsistent thing, a hypostasis, right? Otherwise, it's just a sheer phantom or right. mental thing, an idea that doesn't have any concrete existence. And so again, when he when Severus looks at Chalcedon and said, "Okay, you're saying there's one person," you're just giving lip service to that, because what you end up saying of that one person is that he lives quote into natures, and for him the identity the identity that law comes in and says, "Okay, well, a nature equals a concrete subject." If there's two natures, there's two concrete subjects. Actually, Nestorius agrees with that, the abstractly, right? That's what leads him to his position. Um, 
And so it's funny because they have a commonality there. What, what they share that principle, but that's exactly a part of the, of uh, Severus's anxiety and saying, well, you're saying a lot of nice things about one in the same subject, one in the same Lord, son, blah, 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 only begotten. But really everything else you say is dual. And that has, and if you're going to call these things Christ's two natures, you are basically just saying, right? If, unless you're talking about just some figment that has no reality, which also destroys salvation because there's no real unity between two concrete right, things, finite, infinite, creator, creature. Unless you're, so if you're going to say these are real and there's two of them, well, then you're just saying there's two subjects, two concrete existences. And so I think, I think that what Neo-Calcedonia is, and here's a huge move and it's a controversial move. We're sort of moving later in the stage now in the conversation. What people like John, like if we're going to throw some names out there, John the Grammarian or John Grammaticus, later thinkers, John Maxentius, John Scythopolis even, Leontius of Byzantium, Leontius of Jerusalem, all these people through Justinian, Constantinople II, Maximus, all these people. The big move they're going to say is, uh, we agree with you that a nature, if it's real, has to have a hypostasis or a person. What we don't think that means is that a, a one real nature has to have only one hypostasis. We think that one hy- hypothesis or person can actually concretize or material or maybe existentialize, if you want to put a weird word, two natures at once. So in other words, when we say Christ has two natures in his one person, we actually are still agreeing with the principle that a real nature needs a person mm-hmm. because only, only persons are fundamentally real. That's another big move. There's two moves here. One is that the hypothesis alone exists for itself, as Leontius of Byzantium says, not the nature or essence. Huge, huge innovation. There are no longer self-subsistent natures that simply correspond to our noetic way of mapping, say, the hierarchy of causes. What's first and foremost is is an individual person or hypothesis. Massive shift. Zachary calls it a, a metaphysical tremor, right? Um, it's 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 flipping yeah. the script on things that have gone before, um, right? So it, this is Johannes Zachary makes this argument that that even in the fourth century, what even even for Basil, even for Gregory of Nyssa, we're trying to account and give voice to the importance of hypostasis and the Trinity. Even there, what's the most fundamental is the unity of the nature, right? The nature, the nature itself is what is, exists for itself. The nature is what exists on its own. The nature is, um, is what it is apart from any of its instantiations hypostatically. Um, there's some difficulty mm-hmm. there with the Trinity, but, you know, in, in my... Right. And mundane and, that aside, and, and sort of yeah. um, the classical picture, as you say, universals are what have uh, metaphysical pre- uh, precedence. Right. I mean, we could just think of Porphyry's tree, right? You can think of any sort of uh, emanation schema. Anything like this begins with, you know, the universal has the power to be in the, the multitude, right? The, the, like, the, like the general principle, right, is the more generic something is, the more diffusive, uh, the more, 
right? The more diffuse it is. So, right, being, for example, could be very high up there, depending on who you're talking to. It's maybe the highest genus or whatever, or maybe it's not a genus. Or, but it's everywhere because rock, right? A rock is, so is a god, so is an angel, so is a human being, so so is, in some sense, an idea or whatever. So, so you begin with, there is something like, like you basically hypothesize logical priority. And you say, well, the thing that can encompass, that can sort of be the umbrella over the multitude of things is there first. And then those things come out of or proceed out of what's more general. And they become more contracted, determinate, until they basically hit all the way down to the lowest level, which is just matter, you know, an atom or something, uh, depending on their physical, their view of the world at the time. But like... So that that there's something there that's just intuitive. The, the highest, the most transcendent thing is also the most universal and uh, and generic. But what it means is that that has to already be there, subsist. Then, in, then any sort of differentiation between that universal general thing and the highest is the one for a lot of these systems. Any differentiation immediately creates a new subsistence. What we're here saying in neo-Chalcedonianism, thinking about and reflecting about Christ is the exact opposite. And that is, for example, there is no human nature of Jesus except as it comes out of or is concretized, so to speak. I'm sort of a little bit here crudely. Out of the hypothesis itself, or the way I, I like to put it is that it's the actual identification of the Son with his own humanity, which generates that humanity itself. It's not like Christ is some genus or, 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 or that Christ's humanity comes out of the general man, the Platonic ideal man, and sort of concretizes for a pervert, provisional amount of time and then goes back up, reverts. No, it's his becoming an individual particular man in himself. He is the hypostasis of this humanity, which generates that very humanity. So in that case, it's actually the identification, the, the act, however bizarre it is, an act of identification, identity generates natural difference. A hypostatic identity generates natural difference because natures couldn't be at all there and couldn't be different, therefore, unless yeah. they were hypostasized, unless they were in a person. And on my, but, on my but reading, it, there, it's there just clear to get the, the two horns of the dilemma here. Um, uh, either you say what you just said, or here's your other two options. One is that Christ's humanity was existent in itself before being assumed by the word, right? There's a historical yeah. term for that. Yep. It's called Nestorianism, right? We write Nestorianism <laughs> or adoptionism, right? Adoptionism. Um, uh, or the other one is that um, Christ assumes or participates or whatever you want to talk about it, um, a universal human nature that did not have concrete existence before that. At which point, um, being assumed by the Logos is something that now obtains for human nature as such, as a universal, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the two, those are the two options. Mm-hmm. If you begin with natures, if you begin with... Yeah. Good luck with that. And what's funny is that what, what you just said is exactly Severus's, those are two of his arguments. He, he does do that. He does say, listen, either you're saying Christ's assuming humanity means he's assuming every human person because 
again, he agrees, yeah. natures don't exist outside of actual persons. Or what you just said, right, mm -hmm. as well, or you're just being historian. And so what you're exactly right that neo-Chalcedonians are meeting both sides of a seeming contradiction and they're bringing them together by innovating the very idea of the relation with the priority, existential priority between hypostasis and nature and saying, well, what if you say this? What if you say Christ's two natures? Yes, we agree. They never existed outside of Christ, either of them, but let's just focus on humanity. Uh, the humanity of Christ never existed outside of Christ. And yet, right, when he takes it on, it's the very thing that makes him consubstantial or universally identified with all the rest of us. So Maximus takes his, uh, a very strange, Maximus and some other authors take uh, a certain position that I'm not going to get into the details of, but is just to flag it. What he does end up saying is that Christ's humanity is at once universal and particular. Because he, you can't be on, in, in a schema where it doesn't have a floating, right, hypostasized hum, general humanity above all of the sort of members or something, and only exists, and this Gregory of Nyssa even has this too, right? The universal only exists through the whole set of all the members, not anywhere else. In that case, then, being particularized as a human is the same thing as taking on the universality of humanity. There's a sense in which right? Being a particular um, human being makes you immediately and fundamentally connected to every other human being. So what, so then let's back off for a second and say this. So what we just said was, from the Neocostonian perspective, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the same upostasis, right? That they all fought over in the fourth century. That very one is identical to and generates his humanity in the incarnation generating and being that humanity means that he himself in in his hypostasis also generates the very difference between humanity and divinity in himself that's like that's pretty high flying and we just sort of jumped pretty far there but just to see that's sort of where we're head like that's the upshot right of of twisting all and developing all these terms maybe to return to the system. story briefly um that's where we're headed uh to get to the turn to get to this group of people called Neo-Chalcedonians, right? Um, so we've talked about Severus. We've talked about mm -hmm. Severus um, as someone who looked at the con the contradictions that were inherent in the Chalcedonian definition, um, and his tack was, "Why think this?" <laughs> right? His tack was, um, "We don't we don't need this. We don't have to be Chalcedonian. This is an innovation. Um, this is we can we can." We don't have to accept it, right? Um, the Neo-Chalcedonians, mm -hmm. by contrast, are those who grant the concerns of Severus, of the Cyrillian tradition, but also feel bound dogmatically by what Chalcedon had pronounced, mm -hmm. right? Um, so maybe mm -hmm. we could talk a little mm -hmm. bit about, about what kind of... Uh, uh, what kind of theological thinking that is, right? Um, I mean, it, this is, uh, Grillmeyer, interestingly, yeah. 
he, he collates a lot of different terms that um, had been applied to this group of theologians, and he sort of settles with neo-Chalcedonians. But he also says that um, they were also called sort of neo-conservatives, <laughs> in a sense, right? I mean, they're the ones who who sort of think that Chalcedon's definition is binding, right? Um, they think they are bound by mm-hmm. the terminology that it sets out, right? So, in a sense, uh, mm-hmm. one thing we like to say is that is that they are sort of the neo-Chalcedonians are the ones who sort of heighten the contradictions, right? They accept the contradictions that are inherent in the Chalcedonian statement, and they use the contradictions there. You know, the sort of the sort of Leo uh, the, the 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 Leo line, the Pope Leo line, and the Cyrillian line, um, and they develop their thinking by taking both of these horns on, by taking both of these sides of the contradiction on, on board, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to just give a real quick concrete example of that, I mean, it was pretty common, you see it in, in Leo, and but a lot of thinkers, right, to do what's called partitive exegesis when it comes to Christ. Christ, you say, well, you know, in this passage here where he's crying in John 11 about Lazarus dying, um, that's sort of like a human emotion or passion or something. And so this is like Jesus sort of his human activity or in that sense, passivity being expressed. But then when, you know, uh, and say Luke chapter four, where Jesus just walks through the midst uh, untouched of a mob that wants to throw him over a cliff and apparently no one can do anything about it. Well, that seems like a pretty divine sort of miraculous, you know, all, so you say times where he's sort of weak and fragile, that's human times where he's, uh, you know, uh, powerful and doing miracles or something, that's that's divine. Well, you know, Nestorius has a way of <laughs> accounting for that. <laughs> which side of the kind of relation of the two sort of personas or, you know, whichever part of his life you're in, but which side is sort of di- is dominant. That's one way to do it. But you can, but, you know, and then you could, but you could have someone like Severus saying like, you know, well, yeah, you can speak that way, but really we know all along it's just one subject. But what you have with somebody like Maximus, who's with, with the exegesis, what he will say, and even, uh, he, well, he will say, um, actually, both activities, exactly because of the identity, the oneness that Jesus Christ and his person is, all activities are dual. It's always human and divine. So that's why he ends up, and he, he takes this from Gregory the Theologian, you know, his his miracles were done humanly and his passion was, was, uh, you know, performed divinely and, you know, and sort of the weaknesses are when the divinity is just as much there as they are when they're in the miracles. And it's always sort of this actually uses perichoresis or interpenetration of the two. Um, and so, you know, and theandric energy or, or theandric sort of existence from Dionysius. Um, but the point there is like concretely, right. The, the move is not to say, well, yeah, like definitely not to say, well, there's two subjects and sort of one's making himself known a little more clearly here than the other. But it's also not to say sort of like, well, you know, the, the moments where Jesus looks sort of more human, it's like his property sort of dominating, but really his fundamental nature is just sort of this, you know, kind of divine, uh, divine human mixture or whatever. What, what you say is it's because he's, he's, he's one in a completely different way than it would be uh, than, than sort of like say two things with the same natures are one naturally because he's one hypostatically. It actually means that, th- that his natures are always two. 
So you, the point is you're bringing these two contra- seemingly contradictory positions and you actually make them mutually dependent. Um, and you can do that all the way to the level of exegesis. Like it's not which activity is being right. shown forth. They're always being show, shown forth. You might contemplate them differently different, you know, from different angles. But so, so I think all of that gets to the bigger question that you're getting to, Taylor, which is um, the way that they thought that they could try to make Chalcedon persuasive to its detractors was not just by saying, mm-hmm. well, but that's not our grammar. Look, it's Christian to talk this way. Look, Nicaea talked this way. Because really, if you're going to appeal to Nicaea, like they all did, Justin said earlier, right? Uh, well, uh, it was, turns out grammar is not enough because you actually have to understand what's being said mm-hmm. and it's being used differently there than it is now. And so the task of continuing and even defending past conciliar statements is inseparable from the task of reconceiving the meaning of those very same statements, basic concept, yeah. concepts and premises. Yeah. So I want you, you, we started out, this is, so we're sort of circling back to where we started, um, which is that uh, there's a sort of, you know, <laughs> all of the sort of recherche uh, historical arcana um, ends up with uh, a revised doctrine of God. Um, so I wondered if we might, uh, we might try to sort of, or Jordan, if you could, sort of summarize what is it that the Neo-Chalcedonians end up doing, uh, and then uh, what you know we together um, might imagine uh, that means for reconceiving the doctrine of God, or even historically, right? How is it that they? I mean, I know right, uh, Leontius uh, of Jerusalem does things like this. Um, how is it that they themselves consciously uh, reconceive the doctrine of God? given the, the features of, of the so-called neo-Cassidonianism. Yeah, so I, maybe I would note uh, about four things here. Is that sort of where we're headed? Yeah. Is that where we're headed? Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, so kind of summing up the features, like four features or characteristics of neo-Cassidonianism in this historical development. One is that Neo-Calcedonians, um, they, they are going to sort of defend the logic of what they take are the Christian mysteries, both incarnation and trinity, as you say, doctrine of God, and if you want to say a doctrine of the economy. But they do so only by developing the logic of the, of the very terms or concepts involved. We've already kind of noted that with hypothesis and uh, Another thing, though, that they do is um, that they insist, as we've also noted, the inversion of uh, of hypostases and and usia or essence. They basically are, are you asking for that? I don't know if that's really. Are these what you're asking for? Okay, I feel sure. like the question is different, but um, so I think. Yeah. Okay. So the way they develop the logic, essentially, then that's the first point. They develop the logic in order to defend it. Right. That's the idea. Um, because you can't just bark back at Severus, the Calcedonian definition. That's the very thing he's rejecting. Um, and so you have to develop it in a way that's tr- trying to be more persuasive. But also, you know, let's not pretend. I mean, because Severus has some shared premises, even with them. It's an internal challenge, too, that he's mounting. I mean, they both appear to appeal to Cyril in the Cappadocians, right? So, right. So it's not 
they really are. It's sort of an imminent development. So in order to do that, what specifically happens with Neo-Calcedonians is they actually develop two distinct but inseparable logics. One is the logic of person. Um, and the other is the logic of nature or essence, if you will. These have to be distinct in their very function, like logical but also ontological function, or else Chalcedon itself crumbles. Because Jesus is one in a very different way than he is two. So any kind of compromise to say, well, you know, sort of it's both are sort of on the same level, as it were, would would be just sheer absurdity. So they actually had to develop the idea that uh, a hypostasis, for example, which while it has no essential content in itself, right, because it is one in Jesus when the essences are two, so, so you can't reduce the person to the essences that it bears or is. Uh, at the same time, a person really it does deliver to us an existential content that's positive. It's not just that a person is, you know, um, is an idea. And I actually think at this point, there are some pretty immediate like connections with some like even modern philosophy and, and theology. We don't have to get, we can explore those later, but just to flag it, to say something like, I mean, I think, I think what's interesting to me and one of the, one of the uh, things I've researched on this or, or sort of tried to argue was that, um, this isn't just like an esoteric sort of development in like high flying speculative Christology. What it actually, it is that, but it also kind of opens up on something that really is kind of obvious to us by even just an everyday uh, phenomenological experience, like the human face or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever you encounter a human now being, we're talking. You, could never, you could never objectify a human being without losing the person th- uh, that you're supposedly speaking about right. or thinking of. It's why you have to experience a person to know what they, really are or who they really are rather um right so this is flagging that there is at least an an irreducible distinction even if you always find a nature and a hypostasis together and and that is the neo-custodian position you can't like separate them only abstractly you can but that's it you never actually find them except in an inseparable unity but they are nevertheless distinguishable they're not the same content and this inherently warps or transforms the, for lack of a better term, the philosophical grammar uh, that theology plays with. I mean, there's really kind of no way um, through this sort of um, Christological reimagining of everything uh, Mm -hmm. that you can come out the other side of it and simply um, rehearse Platonism or Neoplatonism, no matter how sophisticated, you know, all mm-hmm. of these sort of notions, uh, you know, of the hierarchy of being and, and, you know, elaborate models of participation, whether Procline or, or Platinian or what have you, yeah. They, yeah. There, there's no way that you can simply hang on to this ready at hand, uh, these ready at hand ontologies mm-hmm. without having them pass through the fire of a, triadology and and a christology i think that's sort of something that justin was pulling on with his initial question right so there's this sense when you talk about people that you know each of us have been tremendously influenced by and wouldn't be here really without you know the nouvelle theology and you know um the way they 
go about differentiating philosophy from theology and the the levels of discourse operative when one is wearing an ontological hat, so to speak, uh, or a methodological hat versus a Christological or or a Trinitarian one, as though you know um, the discourse of dogma is somehow pre-theological <laughs> or, right. or pre-philosophical, um, while. Y- one can work through all sorts of, of, of problematics imminent to philosophy without necessarily having those, the, the nature of the question and answer being somehow changed by the content of mm-hmm. theology itself. So this does something that uh, sort of subverts and then radically alters both the form and content of the theological enterprise and its relationship to whatever philosophy i mean it's it's so in other words it's the elimination of 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 any kind of naive neutral philosophical appropriation that somehow doesn't pass through the thinking of 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 christology yeah i mean one thing that i think sort of gives the on this point uh sort of gives the lie to the assumption that you know as jordan was mentioning earlier um the assumption that you know everything's sort of settled when you take Nicaea and Chalcedon, it seems to be two for whatever reason. Nobody cares about the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, even Nicaea and Chalcedon, everything's settled. And then it's just sort of working out details, right? Or right in, uh, in you know, in, in more sophisticated, refined circles, uh, moving everything from implicit to explicit or whatever, yeah. right? Um, but it seems to me that uh, one place where, where uh, the tradition itself or figures in the tradition itself uh, give the lie to this is for instance, where Maximus uh, will say that, that, that even the divine nature has to be in person, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so the very criteria um, in Christology in one of these sort of accidental ornamental, uh, you know, uh, so, stitching up the loose ends, right? Um, actually gets run all the way back up Jacob's ladder such that now even right uh, w- what was true in you know in in the economy also has to hold in theology yeah yeah there's a text uh, maximus says in epistle 13 he says i will i will dare to go even to the greatest heights and say that even in the trinity itself logos uh, the, sorry the logos of person and the logos of nature right are not the same so it's exactly what you just said. So, so it's, 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 let's think through in the fires of, of Christological controversy. On the one hand, the results of that, especially this distinct, the irreducibility of person to nature and, and yet their inseparability, um, and that they deliver different positive content. Um, this goes all the way back up into the Trinity for Maximus. It also goes all the way back out to, like, say, anthropology for Maximus Neocalcedonians. And so now, now what's interesting is, and I think this maybe goes to Jack's point as well, this supposedly Christological datum easily becomes, you know, sort of transparent to just regular common experience. Like now, like, like I'm not saying I needed it. I'm not making any phenomenological claim. All I'm saying is it, it's just as readily almost verifiable now in, say, my experience with my newborn daughter yeah. 
moment that I see her face and how irreducibly singular she is. And yet I could never formalize it abstractly, or I could never reduce what it is that I'm experiencing in gazing at her face. I could never reduce that to any essential or formal content, certainly not of her nature as being an instance of human being. Because she's an instance of herself in a way that isn't the same way that she's an instance of human being. So that's the sort of like really subtle distinction, but that actually is available to us in just experience, I think. But that was something that had to be forged at this stage in a very tight conversation and controversy surrounding Christology. But it's interesting, it just branches out. Now we're going to think, think back to the Trinity that way. Now we're going to think to the very constitution of human persons this way. And so... Like you're, I think all of that illustrates Justin's point, which is that, you know, how, how, how do you parse out the dogmatic speculative developments and how deep can you go and rethink things in order to preserve the very things you're rethinking? There's no way to predict that ahead of time. Right. I mean, Maximus, it's telling, right, that Maximus calls, uh, calls people who aren't, aren't on the side here atheists. Right, yeah. so they've got the whole doctrine of God wrong. It's not right. Uh, they they failed. They failed in one of their uh, deductions or something. Right. They they got the whole yeah. thing wrong. And what's also what's also telling is it as we've already been saying it absolutely heightens what seem to be contradictions. Right. There's a really key moment in the dispute with Pyrrhus, you know, a bishop, who's defending monergism, where Maximus makes this claim and it shocks Pyrrhus. Uh, Pyrrhus says, so are you saying there's nothing in common between Christ's divine nature and Christ's human nature? And Maximus says, nothing at all, only the hypostasis. So what did, what did he just say? In a sense, he's an absolute dualist. There is yeah. absolutely nothing in common between divinity and humanity. On the level of nature, on the logic of essence, you can't list anything. All the contraries, set up all the predicates. It's all... Yes, they're all contradictory. Could you ever shove them together on that level? No, not at all. Maximus has no interest in it. Why? Because he doesn't need to, because there's another level and another logic that achieves the total and complete identity between two things that are infinitely different by nature. So now he's at once, at least on the surface, and we could talk about details and all that We could, you know, at another time, but I'm just saying the form of the thought here is that he's at once absolutely univocal because after all the son who is the second person of the trinity also suffered and died on the cross the same son is univocal because there's an identity which is the person of the son on the level of hypostasis right on that logic it's just identity and yet at the same exact time at about the same one person there's an absolute duality an infinite chasm as it were separating on the level of nature christ's two natures so here we haven't just received the Antiochian Nestorian uh, concern about duality and then also received the Cerulean Alexandrian emphasis on unity and just said both um, as Chalcedon did, but they've actually developed the very terms and at the, in the process exacerbated both sides really in a sense because it, right. because it really is an innovation. It really is an innovation in the, the levels of logic. So uh, this is, I mean, right, a uh, very technical meaning of, of sublation here, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> no, I mean, like, it, it, in the sense that, I mean, Christ uh, is the identity of identity and non-identity. Um, that oh, That is the living metaxi between 
the absolute opposition and the identity between them. He is identity and difference in itself. No. Right. Yeah, he is. And actually, I mean, we, we, we give credit to von Balthasar here. He does say that in the, in the Maximus book, I would just add, because I think it, you know, he's not just the identity of identity and difference. He is hypostatically the identity of natural identity and natural difference. Natural difference. Yeah. Cause he's actually identical to every human being, just as he's naturally consubstantial with the, with the, with the father and the spirit. So he's actually natural unity and natural difference, the absolute infinite right difference. There's nothing in common between divinity and humanity, as he says. But it's this level of person, mm-hmm. which is so absolutely difficult to think. I mean, we all know this, right? Porphyry knew this. The moment you start you predicate anything of a subject, you're no longer talking about the subject itself, but only something around it. I mean, everybody knew this. It was like sort of basic, you know, organon stuff. Right. Um, and you could say you could leave it at the level of logic, or you could make some sort of ontologic. Hardly nobody made any sort of ontological or metaphysical claims about it, but Christology forced it because the subject has to be positively right. existential. It's the it's the real unity, concrete unity, and yet it's the very thing that's the most difficult to think. And maybe to close out this historical section, just this is what you just said, Jordan, um, and Maximus is probably the best example of it um, is that the term neo-chalcedonian to denote a group of theologians um, that came after the council of chalcedon one of the hallmarks is the simultaneous use of both formulas right the simultaneous use of the formula Mm -hmm. of chalcedon right the dogmatically Mm -hmm. binding one and also admitting in a sense the propriety of the Cyrillian mm-hmm. formula, right? So, so you know, here's Epistle 18. This is what Maximus says: He who does not fess, he who does not confess that Christ is one incarnate nature of God, right? It's the Cyrillian <laughs> formula, the Logos, does not believe that the union t- took place. And likewise, he who does not confess the two natures after the union is not able to say that the difference between the na- natures yeah. remains. So this is this is again just to close out this historical section. This is one of these we talk about sort of criteria for what a neo-Chalcedonian is, and we listed some names earlier. Um, this is one of those yes, criteria, yeah. right? Is is the ability to confess both sets of formulas? The ability to confess, in one sense, Cyril and the Severan line were absolutely right, and. The Chalcedonian definition is binding. Yes, and this is where I think then sort of sums up the the whole character of it is that is then this: if they think that they have found a way to affirm and actually require the double affirmation of these contraries, then the initial set of objections to each side of the contrary no longer matter. Right. Right. So you can sit here and tell me all day abstractly about how different infinite and finite is. Great. I'll actually, uh, you know, Maximus will one up you and say that there's not even they don't have anything in common. You actually can't meaningfully speak of their difference at all, or 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 even their analogy, or even their sort of somewhat asymmetrical relation or anything. He says there's absolutely nothing. There's no concept that spans even even analogously the, those two. Right? He never uses analogy at all, like in that sense whatsoever. So um, 
right? So, so on the one hand, you <laughs> just remind, this is what I think like we've all sort of experienced in different contexts where it's like, oh, wait, how can you say that, you know, how can you bring the infinite and the finite so close together? I mean, you know, they're quite different. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, yeah, yes, they are on the level of nature. In fact, they're absolutely different. And so there's no need to try to shove them together on that level. That would be illicit and wrong and illogical and absurd. But at the same time, as you're saying, right, there's, there's also no level of like, well, you know, um, since they're different, we really can't make them like completely the same exactly for the same reason, because on that level, no, we're not trying to make them the same, but they have to be more fundamentally and concretely the same in a completely new way that was previously unthought and certainly not thought possible. But the development of logic is concomitantly the development of what's possible by definition. So, so I think that's, that I think is actually most often in our like con like very different conversations we have instead of this like historical theology, patristic stuff. What we all I think have encountered in many different ways and contexts are people basically just formally replaying like the other side and what Neo-Calstonian, the sort of, I guess, character of it is to try to account for both sides and even in fact exacerbate them precisely because they're mutually dependent in a sense. The logic of hypothesis and nature, for example, you can't have one without the other, really. So if we're going to talk about the whole yeah. truth of things, um, one side's objections uh, are not only admitted, but actually fundamental to the, the, the concrete unity of the thing we're speaking of for, in, in today, right. what it's been the person of Christ. So, um, so I think that's that's pretty notable. It, it, what it, I do, do think it shows both historically is that this conversation was necessary, but also that it was integral to the understanding of everything that came prior. So, so skipping to people that just sort of talk about, you know, ab, again, anytime someone goes abstractly to the difference between God and the world and the different predicates and contrary predicates that attach to either side of those has not even contemplated a development in the conversation, let alone uh, are stating anything meaningfully objection, you know, uh, meaningful uh, in terms of objections to to uh, neo-Calcedonian where they end up through their conclusions. Yeah. Right. So I guess then, like, for next uh, for next time, we're going to sort of pick up the relevance of these questions in terms of why they end up being so controversial and freak out so many people maybe. Uh, and the way that that's sort of uh, brought out by certain issues and uh, the philosophy, the philosophical trajectory from the 19th century on and how modern systematic theology wants to sort of work through these issues by avoiding some of the perceived radicalism of insisting upon this sort of language of identity and symmetry um, next mm -hmm. time. So we'll sort of look at uh, the import for these questions and the application of these sorts of answers in terms of contemporary issues, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll jump out of the historical minutia. Until then, I mean, we'll just say, you know, Neo-Calcedonianism, it's good. It's good. It is, in fact, actually, actually it's, it's good. good.
Carry